was like hard-headed, like just like, I didn't want to listen. I was like, no, like against everything. Like I don't want, I don't want y'all in my face. All the staff just like helped me out on my life. Like you're not that person. And when they told me that, I realized I'm not that person. You're right. I changed. I changed for good. 36 months into his 10-year sentence, Ricky Gator says he's matured. There's an argument that what troubled adolescents really need is time. Not locked in correctional facilities, but time to come of age and heal from childhood traumas that may factor into their criminal behavior. Welcome back to Public Plea. I'm Ed Madison. A number of experts assert that recent brain development research suggests that the justice system should treat juveniles differently than adults. Brain research plays so much into trauma-informed care. University of Oregon researcher Rhonda Neese. Because you can look at these images of a stressed out brain or the brain of a neglected child and a healthy developing brain and it doesn't take a neuroscientist to see the difference, to actually see the difference in the way that the brain is developing. Children cannot learn to emotionally self-regulate in times of stress when we are flooded with cortisol. That is in fact true. I mean. Have you ever been angry and worked up and somebody said, calm down, you need to calm down. Like that has never worked in the history of the world. You don't calm down in those moments of stress and frustration. Lewis and Clark law professor, Aliza Kaplan agrees. There's been a huge understanding, both in the scientific community and in our courts, including the US Supreme Court, um, about brain development with regard to how does a youth's brain change over time? What they do when they're young isn't necessarily determinant of who they are, what their behavior in the future will be. That kids, and you know, what's really interesting is, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I could tell you very easily that looking at my own behavior as a youth, right, a fortunate, privileged person, um, and how I evolved, it's really just confirmation of that. Former Multnomah and Clackamas County prosecutor John Foote disagrees. Well, I think it's just another weapon being used, and mostly it's hokum pokum. You know, obviously juveniles, I have two juveniles, I have two teenagers. I know they're different, but I was a teenager too. It's not like, I never thought that I could do some of these things and not have to pay a steep price. I don't think anybody thinks that. Joshua Marquise, who prosecuted cases in Clatsop County for more than two decades, sides with Foote. There's nothing new about that. Now, has science been able to determine more? Yes, but no, I think, reputable, honest uh, neuroscientist will tell you that they're able to look at, say, a PET scan or a CAT scan and tell you, aha, this 17-year-old is his brain is not developed as well as this 17-year-old, and therefore they should be treated differently. Steve Dole is Oregon's leading victims' rights advocate. I'm neither a lawyer nor a scientist. I don't know. Uh, I really don't. But here's what I do know, is that science is a moving target. Mental health was a factor in the tragic death of Dole's 12-year-old daughter, Lisa. In 1992, she was stalked and struck dead by a car in Lake Oswego driven by 16-year-old Andrew Whittaker. The crime was committed in an unusual way. He didn't shoot her, he didn't kill her with a knife, he didn't strangle her, he killed her with his car. 
and uh, he was not he was not drunk or under the influence of drugs. Uh, he took his car uh, on a Lake Oswego Street with a 20 mile an hour speed limit to over 40 miles an hour and ran her down. She was exactly where she was supposed to be on the berm of the road off to the side where we always told her to walk. There were tire marks down through people's yards and uh, he drove, drove, ran her down. And when he was captured by the police, he said and asked, he, the police gave him every chance to get out from under it. He says, you know, you're a young kid, you had a bad day. And he says, no, it wasn't an accident, I did it on purpose. He made that statement twice. When he got to the police station and they were questioning him. Despite a confession, a jury did not convict Whitaker of murder. He served only 28 months for the lesser crime of second-degree manslaughter. It's expected that a father would advocate for strong justice after the tragic loss of their child. But from a policy standpoint, has Measure 11 fulfilled its promise? Has it made Oregonians safer? What we've learned most of all is after having, you know, 25 years um, of Measure 11, um, we've learned that it's not it, it's not doing what they told us it would do. All of these punishing laws nationally and locally um, here in Oregon and in every state haven't made us safer. Um, what it has done is ruined lives and futures for youth, young people, um, and communities, families. The, the narratives are out there that, that have been driven in people's minds about Measure 11 are, are troubling to me. And that is that it didn't make us a safer place. It definitely has. When you can drop the crime rate by over 50%, especially when it was at the high levels, we had one of the highest violent crime rates in the country at the time, in little old Oregon. That's, uh, and when you can drop those crime rates as significantly as we have, 54, 55%, uh, that, that statement is just uh, outrageous. I guess the narrative is that locking people up, you know, helps protect the community. Portland defense attorney, Lisa Lundwig. But if you think about it, you lock up an 18-year-old for the seven years that he or she, usually he, would have been forming all those social bonds that you form between the ages of 18 and 25, including all the employment experience that you gather and you know, all of those things. And instead you put them in an environment where um, they're warehoused, you know, they might have a crappy, you know, make work job. Um, they have virtually no access to programming or treatment. So you lock that person up during that, um, that important era of their lifetime and then you spit them back out on the streets with no support, no rehabilitation, uh, no skills, uh, a felony record. And yeah, I, and then, then what do you think is gonna happen? <laughs> like. The idea that long prison sentences work as a deterrent is just false. It, it doesn't. Portland State criminologist Mark Lehman. That's one thing we know that there's very little connection between you know, actual prison use and, and crime. Um, uh, one of the big things about the time is that we justified the use of these long prison sentences and sending more people to prison is that prison was a a deterrent effect. You heard this a lot that you know we needed this to deter people from from committing crime, and what we know is that when people, vast majority of crimes are being committed, uh, people aren't thinking about oh, what kind of sentence would I get if I got caught. 
what they're really worried about is maybe I might get, I get caught or they might not even be thinking about that. And so, and so um, most of the justifications that we have for um, our long uh, prison sentences don't hold up in, in today's scrutiny. Ben Scissors co-authored a 2018 study on the long-term impact of Measure 11 and mandatory minimums. Long mandatory minimum sentences do not reduce crime rates. If anything, the national data suggests they lead to increased rates of recidivism, which from a common sense perspective makes sense because putting people in what amount to cages for long periods of time is not helpful. Now, Oregon has fairly good youth facilities, but even so, mandatory minimum sentences come with longer sentences. A lot of them transfer into adult prison. It's used, practically speaking, as a bargaining chip. So the idea that there's this truth in sentencing in practical terms is not how it works. Prosecutors use it as a bargaining chip. And what that means is the majority of Measure 11 indictments get pled down in most cases even to non-Measure 11 offenses. So they're just used as a tool to threaten a conviction. In 2018, Oregon legislators essentially repealed Measure 11's impact on juveniles, removing mandatory sentences, a move Josh Marquis believes was ill-advised. I think it was a catastrophically stupid idea. And it was done late at night in the legislature, and four Republicans were literally purchased by the Democratic leadership, because there were several Democrats who didn't vote for it, um, and, and, and promised things that, ironically, they never got in what's called the Christmas tree bill, uh, House Bill 5515 that comes at the end of every session. I'm not suggesting they would have personally profited from it, but for example, you know, they would get a million-dollar facility built in their you know, remote rural district. I don't think there was any thinking about it. I think there was a, a, a strong political movement where voices like mine were utterly ignored. As someone who's been going to the legislature to testify for 37 years, I can tell you that for the last five years, the legislature has been utterly disinterested in hearing voices like mine. I, I really want to express how I feel about these, you know, many of them um, old school style prosecutors, and Mr. Marquis especially, just because he's been so aggressive, especially in his promotion of the death penalty. Um, you know, when Oregon has, you know, con certainly convicted uh, innocent people, like in Polk County, Mr. I can't say his name right now, but um, people who were shown to be factually innocent. Um, and in the United States where we've executed factually innocent people, as well as many people who did not deserve to be executed because of their mitigation and their um, circumstances, uh, you know, Josh Marquis is like, let's have more death penalty, not less. Marquis admits that people of color are prosecuted more frequently, but says that Measure 11 isn't the blame. Part of the problem is the baseline in America is, yes, people of color are convicted more often. The, the salient question is, were they convicted at a disproportionate greater rate under Measure 11 or before Measure 11? Fortunately, about less than 1% of the population commits about 98% of the crime. So I don't think we live in an unusually violent society. 
I think Oregon, in, in fact, statistically, has gotten much safer. Marquise maintains that Measure 11 is fair because it treats every defendant the same. For one thing, as a very simple rule, you don't know what the person you're charging's race is. It's not, you don't see the person, it's, it's a report. Um, I mean, you, there, there have been arguments that if they have a Hispanic sounding name that maybe you would know, but largely, and, I, I, and I'm basing some of this on my own experience, I often had no idea what the person's race was. Secondarily, the grand jury that used to meet in this very room um, would not have a picture of the defendant. Often, we'd have no idea what the race of the person was. Uh, we would never have seen them before. I'm not saying that someone couldn't find out um, or there might be some other indicator. I'm saying that the system, at least in Oregon, and I've prosecuted and even defended in several counties, doesn't identify by race. Um, is there unconscious racial bias? Of course. And, and I don't, you know, the only way I know of to take that out of the system is to do what Measure 11 does and say, based on your prior record and the severity of the crime you committed, that this is the baseline. And what being a prosecutor does is introduce you on a case-by-case -case basis to what happened in that case. And, you know, you end up really listening to crime victims and what the crime, how it impacted them and what an enormous impact this had on their life. And you also listen to the defense attorneys tell you the story of their defendant and then you try and find the right place. And um, it's very meaningful to do that. Um, and I was proud to do it. Ludwig says that's the problem. Prosecutors' vantage points are one-sided. And they get this sort of distorted perspective because they never interface with the defendants and they always interface with the families of the victims and the victims themselves. And I think to give them the benefit of the doubt, I think that that sort of distortion is the thing that drives these fanatical, tough-on-crime prosecutors. Um, I think that they think they're doing something good for the community because they're responding to the people they have direct contact with. And they're, you know, they're frankly responding to the squeakiest wheels too. And prosecutors are subject to that kind of pressure, a lot of that pressure. And so I think that the only way to do the job of a prosecutor and put a stranger in prison without considering anything about them um, is to really cultivate this sort of detachment, right? To, to cut themselves off from their own humanity, um, to, to deny the humanity of the defendants they're prosecuting. Um, I see it again and again. That's, that's Lisa's advocacy. <laughs> She's an advocate for, those, for that side. John Foote responds. I've been both a defense attorney and a prosecutor, and I'm not saying that I don't have the views that I've had, but I don't think that's true. Um, no. Now, do we disagree? Yeah, we have a different set of priorities. A defense attorney's job, and I was one for four or five years in the middle of my career because I got unelected, um, is to protect your client. Not to pursue the truth, but to protect your client. That's a very heavy responsibility. 
And every lawyer sees what that obligation is within the prism of their own values. Um, a prosecutor's job is to pursue justice. That defense defendant is only a part of the story. So, yeah, I could see how why she would say that, but it's just, show me a case. I mean, I've had the experience many times over the years where I've either been appointed or retained to hire, to, to represent a young person who's charged with a Measure 11 offense. And over and over, I've talked to family members and, of course, my clients who say, I had no idea that this is what Measure 11 did. I had no idea that Measure 11 existed. I can't believe that the law would be this draconian. How did anybody think it was a good idea to put all the hands in the power of the prosecutor and none of it in the hands of the judge? Um, I mean, if I had a nickel for every one of those conversations I'd had, I, you know, I'd have a lot of nickels. And it, it's really incredible because some of those people even say, like, I voted for Measure 11. I, you know, I never in a million years thought it could be applied in a situation where my child, you know, was involved in, you know, something that I don't even consider to be prison worthy. I mean, you know, you're a, you're a parent. Um, your child um, is in high school. Let's say they're 17. Um, you know, they're going through whatever you go through in high school. They go down to the MAC station. Um, they get in a shoving match with some other kids. Uh, maybe they take one of those other kids' phone or um, skateboard or whatever. Um, and because it's a group uh, that did it, that were involved, you know, you've got the sharks and the jets. Um, and uh, because, because it was more than one person involved in that, um, and let's say it's all on video, because all the Mac station things are on video. <laughs> Everything that happens on TriMet is on video. Um, and so the prosecutor has a strong, and then, you know, then let's say it was a phone that was taken, so you've got plenty of forensic evidence of where that phone went and who had it, and, you know, you could have fingerprints and DNA. I mean, let's say that the prosecutor has a locked-up case um, that shows that your child uh, was among a group of three teenagers who took property by force, that's a robbery in the second degree, um, your client, or your kid is guilty, right? Your kid has done this crime. He is guilty under the law of Oregon. Um, and let's say you have a hard prosecutor. Let's say you're in Washington County where, you know, justice goes to die. And um, you, you know, and the prosecutor is saying, you know, I don't care that your kid is a star athlete. I don't care that your kid is you know, a boy, literally an Eagle Scout. I don't care anything about that. You know, he committed a robbery in the second degree and he's gonna to go to prison for 70 months uh, if he goes to trial. Professor Kaplan. A sort of stereotypical situation would be the district attorney throws a whole bunch of Measure 11 charges at a youth and then they plea them down. So they end up with one or two, you know, so it seems really bad, you know, it's like what you would think a typical negotiation is, right? But one side has all the power. And, you know, um, as it is, over 95% of all of our cases in the criminal justice system are pled, meaning people don't have an opportunity um, to have a trial and a jury and all that. Um, and individuals, youth, or other um, are put in a position where um, they take the lowest you know, offer because that's probably the best they're gonna do. The truth is our criminal justice system has become a system of plea bargaining. Um, it's less about incentive as that it's built in now. It's just built in. Um, a lot of it is fi the financial 
piece. Um, I would say that a lot of it comes from the defense side and the inability, I mean, the, the, the side with no power also doesn't have resources, right? Doesn't have, doesn't have, never mind the same resources, they don't have any resources. So you see a big movement around the country now for district attorneys, reform and all that stuff. Well, that's a great start. Um, and a ton can be done when you have a district attorney with really different mentality on what justice is and how to spend their money and time and energy and who to prosecute and how to prosecute. But it's also not enough. No, Lisa is a true believer and I don't agree with her values. Uh, I agree that she's a caring person and I agree that she's a zealous advocate, but uh, I think she's just completely one-sided. It's all about criminals. And she's good at sort of the other talk, but that's who she is. I mean, so that's my experience with Eliza. Um, we've had many knockdown arguments. Um, she wasn't around when Measure 11 happened, and out in Oregon. And uh, she's, she's brought her point of view out to Oregon and she's selling it. So Measure 11 was a response, again, to a system where judges were allowed to say in court, I'm giving you ferocious sounding sentence. The public thought that, the victims thought that. It was a lie. I believe, and I think most Oregonians believe, that when the judge says, let's take a, a not an extreme example, I'm sentencing you to the uh, legal and physical custody of the Department of Corrections for six years, that A, the person should actually go to prison. So part of the argument that's not entirely honest about giving judges discretion is the defense bar is fine with giving discretion for judges to go low, they just don't want to give discretion for judges to go high. I don't know why anybody would think that, that Putting people in prison needs to be an efficient process, that it needs to be faster and easier. That's stupid. Um, that is a stupid comment. Um, in federal court, you go slower and more carefully. And what I see over and over again is that in federal court, you get a person who is at the absolute depths of their life, right? They're in crisis. They've become involved in some criminal stuff. Um, they're at their lowest possible point. And most of those people are allowed to remain out of custody on supervision where they're given resources, mental health counseling, uh, other types of drug and alcohol counseling. They are put in inpatient programs that the government pays for. Um, they are allowed to get their lives under control while their case is pending. And by the time the judge sentences them, the judge has gathered data about whether that person can be supervised in the community effectively without doing any more crimes. And you get a sentencing process that actually cares about what interventions will be effective <laughs> in accomplishing the goals of rehabilitation and, you know, making the community safe and accounting for the needs of the victims if there are victims. Um, there is nothing wrong with a sentencing process or a criminal justice process that is careful, even if it takes some time. In that process, prosecutors have to confront the humanity to some extent of the people that they are prosecuting. They have to be in a room with them. Um, more than once, usually. I mean, they, they just can't get away from it. It is part, it's baked into the process. In state court, um, 
you have these situations where, especially the old school prosecutors, you know, there are lots of stories, but you know, who, who won't sit next to a defendant, who won't shake hands with a defendant, who won't speak directly to a defendant and their rules, you know, you're not supposed to speak with a represented party, but won't even acknowledge the presence of the person, let alone would they be in a room with them to talk about anything other than convicting them and sentencing them. Um, they expect to charge a stranger, never meet them, never speak to them face to face, never learn anything about them except for what they're charged with, pick a sentence and have a judge impose it. That's the state court process. Lawyers who practice in federal court tend to be very snooty. They believe that what they do is very elevated. And frankly, the volume in federal court is tiny compared to the rest. So federal crimes tend to be much more serious, much more time is spent on them, and generally judges know much more about the defendants. They also tend to be fairly arcane crimes. Um, you know, very elaborate frauds, very big drug deals, um, a lot is at stake, for, particularly for the defendant. But I, I completely reject the idea that um, sort of federal uh, pr prosecution and defense is concierge justice and, uh, and state crime is bargain basement, you know, shipping them out the door. Ludwig says there's a more insidious reason the system is broken. If you think that the tough-on-crime laws are not linked directly to money, you are crazy. <laughs> um, they, 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 it is, it, I mean, they call it the prison industrial complex for a reason. The movement to build more prisons required more prisoners. And in order to get more prisoners, you had to be tough on crime. And you have this, you know, even back as far as Nixon, this war on drugs was largely financially motivated. And then you have the expansion of police agencies all happening at the same time. The federal agencies are, their mission creep is incredible. Um, the state agencies are all being becoming paramilitary. Um, that all costs a lot of money. And in order to justify all that money, you have to have tough on crime legislation. You have to have politicians who are tough on crime. And that means prosecutors who are tough on crime. There are so many cases that I could have charged as Measure 11, that other prosecutors could have charged, that we didn't. Um, the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission is a group of, I think, seven people appointed by the governor and the legislature to establish these sentencing guidelines. They also predict future prison vets. They do it at one, two, five, and 10-year increments because prisons take a long time to open and shut. So when Measure 11 passed in 1995, they predicted that the prison population in the ensuing 10 years would go from about 10,000 to almost 19,000 because of Measure 11. Okay, we are now 16 years past that date. You know what the prison population is in Oregon now? 14,500. Why is that relevant? Because if you look at it on, oh, this person could be or was charged with Measure 11, therefore they will be, therefore they will be convicted. If that happened, we'd have 30,000 prison and people, right, people in prison right now. We don't. We don't have anything remotely like that. In the next edition of Public Plea, the question of body cams and whether video documentation leads to fairer arrest. All these horror stories that continue to reveal themselves, we had to make sure that 
Transparency and accountability is uppermost thought in everybody's mind, especially when it comes to law enforcement. We look at possible solutions. Is there a way forward? If you want to actually break the cycle, it's education funding, it's funding for early childhood development, you fund real rehabilitative services, um, drug treatment, mental health, uh, education. And those are all the things that keep people out of prison. And in his quest for post-conviction relief, Ricky Gators faces a judge and gets a decision. Thanks for listening to Public Plea. This program was independently produced by alumni and current students at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication in partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting, The Oregonian, and Willamette Week. The views and opinions expressed by our interview subjects are their own and in no way reflect those of the University of Oregon, our partners, or their employees. For more information about this project, go to publicplea.net. I'm Ed Madison.